The ABA is joining with Tropical Birding for the first time for an extraordinary adventure in Thailand in 2019. This is Thailand birding with a camera. So if you are a photographer that likes birds or a birder who likes to take a few photos, this is a trip with you in mind. And there are no shortage of incredible photo subjects in Southeast Asia. Stuff like sunbirds, pitta, incredible pheasants, spoon-billed sandpiper, some of the coolest looking birds on the planet. Plus mammals, culture, and amazing food with ABA friends. This is setting up to be a really exceptional time. Have I interested you yet? Is your mouth watering for bird photography and the real deal pad thai? Get more information at aba.org slash travel. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and I want to take a little time up top to talk about a moment that I think you might have missed, especially if you don't watch prestige cable TV, but I I think it was a watershed moment in the history of birding and bird representation in the media. I don't think I'm overselling it. It is that big, much bigger than that movie that is out now that features the Millennium Falcon that really isn't even a falcon, thanks for nothing, Disney and George Lucas. Anyway, uh, thanks Meredith Miles and Nick Lund, the birdist on Twitter, uh, at Meredith C. Miles, at the birdist for sharing it. That's where I saw it. And I want, to sh- I want to share it with you all. It comes from the recent HBO adaptation of Ray Bradbury's dystopian novel, Fahrenheit 451. At one point, uh, Guy Montag, the main character played by Michael B. Jordan, walks past this sort of futuristic, screen-heavy city center, and there's a video playing with a bald eagle overlaid with an authoritarian message. And, well, uh, I'll just play the scene here. Did you hear it? Did you did you get it? That was a bald eagle making bald eagle vocalizations. We did it. We did it. We did it, friends. Someone at HBO has heard us. Maybe they saw my hashtag birds of Westeros tweets. I have noticed that Westworld keeps things pretty accurate. Lots of morning doves and great kiskadees in season one in these southwestern theme scenes. So, you know, maybe they're trying. Maybe we'll get there to the point where no more red-tailed hawk screams are overlaid over video footage of bald eagles soaring majestically. Now, perhaps the keening, admittedly sort of whimpery call of the bald eagle can finally be heard. It's the sort of thing that, uh, that really inspires you. You know, cue up that music, John. Yeah, that's the stuff. I can see it. I can see it. The bald eagle soaring over some generic western mountain landscape. It's an imposing bird. It's a magnificent scene. I get it. And when that bird opens its mouth... Come on! Cut it. Cut it. It's ruined. So, you know, there's still some work to do, but at least if we end up in our darkest dystopian timeline, we will have solved the bald eagle red-tailed hawk problem. I leave it up to you to decide whether that's worth it. I'm on the fence. 
On this episode, I'm going to wade into the Yanny Laurel debate that has ripped the internet apart and what it means to the bird mnemonic industrial complex. But first, Rosemary Moscow is known to many on the internet as the creator of Bird and Moon webcomics, a favorite of many naturalists because of their cleverness and accuracy. She has a new book out, a collection of her webcomics available in a physical medium called Birding is My Favorite Video Game. She's here to talk about birding, video games, science communication, and more. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the last part of May 2018. This time of year, we turn our eyes to Alaska, where outposts on the Aleutians and the Bering Sea Islands are well-manned to take note of any Asian overshooting vagrants that take shelter there. Good birds have been recorded all over western Alaska in the period. Headlining the impressive list is an ABA Code 5 gray bunting reported from Far Attu, famously the so far west it's actually East Aleutian Island, where John Peshock and crew are running a trip. This is the fourth ABA area record of this East Asian songbird. All previous records have come from Attu and Shemaya in the Western Aleutians. Also on Attu, code for gray wagtails, gray streaked flycatcher, Eurasian bullfinch, and hawfinch. Shemaya is also producing in the last week or so with code for taiga bean goose and hawfinch. Gamble on St. Lawrence Island had a Eurasian bullfinch as well. There have been a lot of lower level rarities seen all over the place, too many to relate here in full. But birders in Western Alaska have been reporting them regularly to the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group if you are interested. On to first records of note, there are none more of note than the amazing Code 4 Golden Crowned Warbler seen in Cheyenne County, Colorado, not quite two weeks ago and seen through the 25th of May or so. This is by far the farthest north record of this widespread Middle American species. All previous ABA area records have come from South Texas, save one from New Mexico. Colorado is definitely an underrated state for birding. I believe it has the largest state list of any landlocked state or province, and this is an exceptional one to add to that list. Other first records to report here in Massachusetts, the first trumpeter swan was seen in Worcester County. Previous incidences of this species in the state had not been accepted, but with the growing Great Lakes population of the species, it stands to reason that modern records might be more likely to be seen as acceptable by local committees. A sad story, Ohio's first record of chestnut-collared longspur was found earlier this month in Lake County. Unfortunately, the bird took to foraging on the side of a busy road, and you can imagine what happened next. It was struck by a car in pretty short order, but not before several birders were able to see it. In Texas, a black swift was photographed in El Paso. This would be the first documented record of black swift in the state. Birders there know that the species was passing over Texas airspace based on birds that had been outfitted with geotrackers. But black swift migrates so high that it's exceptionally difficult to actually document the bird's presence and migration. This one was evidently forced lower due to weather where it was photographed. And in Rhode Island, a black-whiskered vireo was found in Newport County, though it unfortunately stuck around only for that one day. This was the first record for that state and the first record of this mostly Caribbean species north of Virginia. This was a short roundup of the notable rarities in the ABA area for this period. For all your rare bird needs, check out the ABA blog every Friday morning. That's blog.aba.org. You can also join our rare bird Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash ABA rare or follow the rarity Twitter feed at ABA bird alert. <music> 
If you're a naturalist or nature lover on social media, chances are you have come across Bird and Moon, an exceptionally fun account filled with colorful and endearing and accurate nature-themed comics. Bird and Moon is the creation of New England-based artist and writer Rosemary Mosco. She has recently released a new book, Birding is My Favorite Video Game, a collection of many of her most viral creations and a lot more. Rosemary, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Before we get to the the book itself, I want to talk a little bit about your process. Uh, one of the things I, I love the most about your work is that it often takes some weird and cool aspect of bird. Well, not just birds, but a lot of living things, like an aspect of their biology and turns it into a really funny comic. Uh, where do your ideas come from? Oh, that's always a tricky question. <laughs> um, I have a much easier time getting cool facts that I want to talk about rather Mm -hmm. than funny jokes. So I'm just like, (laughs) I'm just like brimming with facts and it's really hard to turn them into something hilarious. So I'd say I always have a million ideas, but I have to wait until I find that piece of it that's going to resonate with people and that's going to make them laugh. Um, So I do a lot of reading. I have a bookshelf that's entirely field guides and I read that all the time. That sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of a field guide <laughs> addict. It's it's like, yeah. oh, I have some field guides that I will definitely never use. But <laughs> but that's the fun part is being able to kind of flip through them. And there's all sorts of, yeah. as you say, all sorts of these cool little facts in there. And and I don't know, I, I like you, it sounds like I'm sort of a, a knowledge junkie. Like I just like to know things. And so it's always nice to have resources to help you do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, those things are made with so much love and care, those mm-hmm. field guides. And so I'll read those. Uh, I'm also a member of as many nature clubs as I can find. So <laughs> I'll go to a lot of lectures. That gives me a lot of ideas. Um, yeah, and I hang out with scientists, uh, pretty much just try to get as much nature science input as I possibly can. Right. Yeah, you never know what inspiration is going to strike, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, humor is a tricky thing. I feel like it's not something you can just sort of like, I don't know, I'm sure stand-up comedians have an easier time, but I feel like it's harder, <laughs> it's harder for me. I think one of the reasons that your work is so endearing is because you really, you don't shy away from the bizarre aspects of natural (laughs) history. In your role as a science communicator, do you feel like you have an obligation to show kind of the weird side of nature or is that something that you just really enjoy? Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's really important to show that nature has so many different dimensions. Um, Mm -hmm. It's also kind of a sneaky trick because people really like stuff that's gross and weird. Um, you (laughs) know, they don't like to say that they do, but it'll definitely draw people in. Um, and it's also sometimes the funniest part. So it's, yeah, it's good for, good for good jokes. But I try, I try to show, you know, I think it's really important to show the context of any creature I'm talking about in some, in some way. I don't always give as much as I'd like, but you know, I won't just say, oh, this animal's gross. I'll say, you know, here's something about its behavior. Here's where it lives or it's, it's horrifically endangered, that kind of thing. I've I've had your book around my house for a a week and a half or so. I've, you know, I've been picking it up, you know, perusing it, checking out comics and, and, you know, my nine-year-old son was immediately attracted to it and he holed up with it for a couple days and he ended up learning a ton just from the way that you build these funny scenarios into these kind of larger natural history points. Are you excited about the possibility of kids being able to access your stuff? I mean, so much of your stuff has been social media based and there's, that's mostly adults, just the nature of social media. But with a book, you're able to reach a whole new audience. Is that uh, appealing to you? 
It is. Um, most of what I've been doing these days is writing for children's books. Um, oh, okay. You know, most of which are sort of like in the future. And that's kind of new for me. I, I guess my book isn't aimed specifically at kids. A lot of people look at comics and they say, oh, this is this is for kids. Um, yeah. and that's not, that's not always the case. I have a couple of jokes in there that are, you know, very mildly off color. <laughs> I feel like right. older kids will be fine. Younger kids, you know, it might go to go over the head and you sort of need to use your discretion. Um, but I really, I guess I, I want everybody of all ages to like it because I feel like we have this sort of funny way of treating outdoor education where it's something that children get. And then yes. they get older, and now it's time to go inside. And, yeah, and oh, that's so true. That's terrible. I feel like adults. There's so much out there for adults too, you know, and teens mm -hmm. and people of all of all ages. So it's sort of like we like put the kids outside, and then you go inside, and then you retire and you go back out, <laughs> and that's not how it should be. <laughs> so, so I guess I, I'm excited more about the potential of reaching an adult audience. Um, but I, but I've heard from people who've had kids read the book and they're really excited. And that, that is really wonderful too. Yeah. Oh, the vulture one was a particular uh, favorite. Uh, I, I heard about that one. Every adult that came into our house heard about that one for about three or four <laughs> oh, that, days. That was me as a kid. So that makes me feel good. Yeah. So, you know, social media has been a huge part of the way that you have built a following. Your work is super social media friendly. Is it satisfying to get that sort of immediate reaction to a piece of work when you put it up online? Yeah, I've in the past, I've worked for nonprofits, and I've done outreach mm -hmm. um, of various types. And I just kind of got addicted to that immediate feedback. I mean, it can be it can yeah. be deceptive. Sometimes, you know, on Facebook, you'll get a lot of likes and not all of those are necessarily, you know, legitimate, like there, there are companies that pay pay people to make fake profiles <laughs> and stuff. And so, you know, and sometimes you're not necessarily reaching outside of your bubble and you have to be mindful of those things, but no, it feels great. You know, I get people, I'll make a joke and there's always this part of me that thinks, is this just me? Am I just weird? And then someone <laughs> will say, no, no, I'm like this. And it's super gratifying. It feels really good. So as I was looking through the book, I was excited to see a lot of the, a lot of the comics that I had seen in the past on your social media feeds, um, alongside some that I might have missed. Um, did you create anything that was brand new for the book that you have not put online? I didn't. Um, that was what I found appealing uh, about going with this publisher was that they wanted to put together something mostly um, made of content I've already, I'd already made. I am really slow. And comics, <laughs> I, comics are not my my full time gig. I mostly write. Um, I'm a much faster writer, but I'm a really slow artist, so I couldn't have you know whipped up 30 new comics for it. But it does have some stuff that you won't find other places. Uh, there's a there's a poem that's an ode to botany that I tucked in there. Um, yeah, there's yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of comics that I'd honestly, I mean, I've been making these things for like 15 years, and I found some <laughs> that through various site transitions had just vanished, even though I really like them. So, so I put those in. Yeah, so there's, there's some stuff. And then <laughs> I thought it'd be great to spend like two weeks making an exhaustive index to every species. Yes, I love the index, actually. <laughs> that is one of my favorite parts. Instead of, uh, yeah, you know, it's got all the little, you know, thumbnails of the uh, images that you've drawn. And 
And you, know, you could find it like, hey, I want to see Peregrine Falcon comic, and you've, there's there's two of them in here. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, that was really clever. That that was, you know, you ask like a nature nerd, like, ooh, what what would you <laughs> add to your book? And they're like, oh, a, an exhaustive index. I did. Um, so that was I entirely put that together by myself. It took way longer wow. than I thought. I had to, you know, check which Latin names were current, <laughs> and then immediately, an, a librarian contacted me and said. Hey, you forgot to put the northern pygmy owl in your index. <laughs> and it, Oops. It, it kills me, but that that kind of thing's going to happen. And of course the librarian's going to find it. Yes, oh exactly, <laughs> yeah. Um I, I talk about bird books with Donna Schulman who reviews books at 10,000 birds and mm. she always has a lot to say about the index. The index is like the first place she goes. She loves a good index, so. Oh dear. Well, hope, yeah, this ought to be ho- Hopefully happy. it does. We'll <laughs> see she'll probably find a few yeah, things I missed, right. but yeah. Is there any uh, particular comic in here that you are especially proud of that you you like a lot? Oh, that's tricky. I'm really proud of the ones that talk about climate change because mm-hmm. they're so challenging to do. Yes, it's, I imagine. It's really hard. It's something that I, you know, I wake up at 4 a.m. thinking about and worrying about. Mm-hmm. And so those times when I manage to make it funny, at least to myself, are uh, really gratifying. I'm trying to think of what what other ones that pygmy owl comic so there's a there's a comic in there about p- pygmy owls and how they um should be a good role model because they're tiny but they are able to capture enormous prey and that makes them kind of horrifying uh, i i feel <laughs> yes. like that's that's a good one because i'm always talking to conservationists and it's such a difficult job and it can be so disheartening and, you know, I want them to feel like they too could, I mean, not necessarily subdue and eat a moose, <laughs> but they could, you know, they can do more than they they think. I see a lot of your work uh, shared by conservation organizations. Uh, do you get a lot of feedback from, from scientists? Or are they especially excited when they see one of their study subjects featured in your work? Oh, they are. And I've done comics where I've contacted a scientist in particular Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a number of my comics are based on a conversation I had or a lecture I went to. Um, and they're just, the scientists are so incredible. I'll usually link to their lab or, you know, promote their stuff on social media. And they they get really excited. A few of them are sort of, you know, not that not that thrilled or surprised. And I just sort of figure they're not on Twitter. And that's that's <laughs> fine. But yeah, making a scientist happy is like, you know, making my hero have a good day. So <laughs> yeah, that, that feels really good. And they also, you know, I love talking to a scientist and, and they'll sort of give me their their pat explanation of their subject. And then I'll say, okay, but like, what do you really like about it? Like, what's really gross <laughs> yeah. about it? And they'll go, oh, well, <laughs> and they'll have like <laughs> a cool and wacky answer. So I love that right. feeling. Well, you know, science communication is such a huge deal these days. There's this huge push of, uh, of people encouraging researchers to get on social media and kind of promote their stuff. And, you know, some of them are good at that, but some of them aren't for whatever reason. You know, some people aren't aren't good at that. They're they're good in the lab. They're good at research. They're not so great at social media, which is fine. I'm sure they appreciate someone like you coming along and, and someone who's so savvy at this sort of thing and taking their stuff and turning it into something that becomes, you know, really appealing to a large 
swath of people. It's almost like they're kind of farming out their publicity to you to some extent. <laughs> Do you ever get that impression? Not totally. I feel like a lot of them don't think even think about publicity, really. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, I totally agree with you. I, I really strongly believe. So I call myself a science communicator, which is a relatively new term. And that's someone who knows just enough science to communicate with the scientists and just enough communication to communicate with either the public or other communicators. And I feel like this is a really important role. And we sort of we sort of keep haranguing scientists to be communicators. And some of them totally should be, probably more of them, many more of them should be. But some of them have no interest in it or, you know, no skills. And while we should work to build up those skills, science communicators have a whole different suite of skills that can be really useful. So I feel like that's, that's really, really important. And I, they also, they can't always be as political, you know, or as simplistic as they'd like to be. And I'm, I'm fine with that. I, you know, get a little, (laughs) little internet backlash, but it's not too bad. So I'm I'm kind of happy to step in and and do that. But all the scientists I work with, oh my goodness, they've been so amazing. I did this I sort of did this therapeutic project where I drew every snake in Canada and the US. And yes, <clears throat> I recall that with um David Steen, Dr. David Steen, who's uh, an excellent scientist. Oh, oh yeah, he's <laughs> wonderful. And and I got I, there were something like I think I had a half dozen herpetologists that were helping me out. And it was just, it was just so incredible to communicate with all these people. Of course, the moment I put it up, another herpetologist immediately messaged me and said, (laughs) one of your, you know, 162 snakes or whatever is slightly too long, (laughs) which is, you know. (laughs) That's classic. That's classic. Uh, Someone is wrong on the internet. (laughs) And I looked and, you know, some of my data had suggested it was longer, but it's a rare snake. And so I, I short, I shortened it. Right. Um, for the final, for the final <laughs> version. But yeah. And I appreciated that too. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's nice. Is there any uh, sort of animal that you really want to work with that you enjoy working oh, with the most? Yeah. Group of I, animals, I have say. a note. Cartoonists write the funniest notes for themselves. Sometimes you look at them, you're like, what was I thinking? I have a <laughs> note that says, draw more whales. So I, I really, you know, I do a lot of birds and a lot of butterflies and a lot of amphibians, but um, I'm really interested in this chunk of whales called the beaked whales. Oh, I love beaked whales. Yeah. yeah. I actually just flipped open to the least majestic whales of the world plate, as you said that. Yeah. Uh, and Blanville's beaked whale. Great one with the crazy tusks. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, one night I was feeling kind of disheartened about the world and I made this little tiny tweet storm about beaked whales they're like a, a quarter mm-hmm. a quarter of whale species and they're so incredible and you know they have these bizarre underbites with these tusks and you know yes. they're so amazing they're so and cool. <laughs> yeah and and I was shocked like it went it was like the most viral set of tweets I've ever made and I was like wait a minute people want to hear about <laughs> beaked whales there's something going on here yeah yeah <laughs> so I've been speaking with the beaked whale biologists and I like have some notes and I just I have a lot of other stuff on my plate but that's all I want to do is make comics about beaked whales and get people to love cuz people love whales but then there's just this yeah. huge chunk of really cool whales that people don't know about they should yeah i i, I live in north carolina and um you know i go out on the gulf stream and we see uh gervais <gasps> beaked whales oh, wow the ones with the tiger stripes yeah. 
very a, a couple of years ago we had an incredible experience with them right by the boat yeah. and it was so cool to be like one of the few people who has ever seen them that well because they're so mysterious like it's uh yeah big twi- i go on about beaked whales almost as much as i oh go on about goodness, birds that but, makes uh, me so happy yeah i've never actually seen one and that's also a weird thing too is i just read an amazing book of lino cuts by a uk norfolk birder and he goes out and studies every one of his species and he was saying you know you really can't draw a bird without without studying it and looking at it and i draw all kinds of things i've never seen and you know maybe never will see and i don't know i don't know i do a lot of research but Hopefully that. Yeah, well, I mean, field guide authors have to do that too. There's no way that uh, David Sibley, for instance, has seen every single species of bird in uh, North America, North you Mexico. Know, do you think so, though? I don't know. He, I would, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, it's like a yeah, thousand it's true, species. it's true, it's true. Yeah, it's true. but it's, I'm yeah, sure he's seen I, I a lot. I would imagine he's but, seen a uh, chunk of them. Yeah, a chunk. Yeah, a fair chunk, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, the na- title of the book is "Birding is My Favorite Video Game." I really like the way that you have tied this this outdoor activity of birding to video games that's something that a lot of people have tried to do for a long time making birding out to be like pokemon or whatever do you really think of birding like video games do you think that's a way to kind of appeal to people more generally you know sort of i wasn't really thinking of it that way so my history is is kind of that for a chunk of time i was uh making video game art and um really hanging out in an indie video game scene uh, I made a top-down video game in which you're an albatross and you try to um, <laughs> oh, cool. you try to fly home to your mate and you avoid long-lying fishermen and <laughs> that kind of thing. So I've, yeah. I've done a lot of video game stuff um, and I was really thinking that that was sort of the direction that I wanted to head in. And then I got into this amazing program called the Field Naturalist Program up at the University of Vermont and started going outside a lot more and doing less video game stuff. So that really kind of came from my history, but I really feel like Hmm. that both of those hobbies have a lot to learn from each other, you know? So there's sort of stereotypes about video games and, you know, and they're sort of a waste of time and whatever, but a lot of them are really incredible and you know they teach you a lot and they're really rich and beautiful and then that's how i feel about you know bird watching too and there's stereotypes about bird watching too so i feel like those two things can definitely be connected and i also you know there's this sort of stereotype that people who play video games you know never go outside and like i play pokemon <laughs> go i'm still playing pokemon go it's like <laughs> it's irresistible but uh but yeah you can you can do both and there's so much value in both of those things i've been waiting for a really good birding um video game although i really love there's one called tiny bird garden that is like a huh. game where you attract birds to your garden and they have names and hobbies and it's so good. It's so amazing. Oh, that's really yeah. clever. Yeah. The only thing I can think of was um, Swarovski Optic had a website, had a, like a web browser game where you were at like a marsh and these birds would fly by and you had to like click on them and then you were given a choice to identify them and you had to. <gasps> I didn't hear that's the that. That's so yeah, good. It was, it was interesting. It was, this was several years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. If you, if you clicked enough, did you get free Swarovski optics? <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no, sadly, no. Yeah. Cause that, then it would have been there like for several hours trying to, yeah, trying to really. beat my high score. But I, oh, it's, it was clever. I, th- I feel like you're right. There are some ways in which that might be, you might be yeah, able to make that work. Yeah, no, definitely. 
Rosemary Mosco is the creator of Bird and Moon Science and Nature Cartoons. You can find her on Twitter at Rosemary Mosco, on Facebook at Bird and Moon Comics, and at birdandmoon.com. Her collection of comics is Birding is My Favorite Video Game. It's available wherever books are sold, certainly on Amazon. Congrats again about the book, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. I had such a good time. And now, can you hear what I hear? I had two interactions on social media in the last couple weeks that had they occurred weeks apart, I would not necessarily have latched them together in my brain like I did. Uh, but the first was an exchange I had on the ABA's What's That Bird? What's This Bird? group, which if you're not familiar with it, is a place where people can post photos or descriptions of birds and we sort of crowdsource the identification. It might be the most popular thing the ABA has ever done online. Uh, anyway, a woman posted a description of a bird song she had heard, describing it as, are you ready, are you ready, are you ready? So in trying to help her, I suggested one of the chanting bird songs, or like Common Yellowthroat or Carolina Wren as my first guess. And then she posted a photo of the apparent songster, and it was very clearly a warbling vireo, which makes sense, right? Uh, and as an aside, I wrote up the classic warbling vireo mnemonic, if I see you, I will seize you, etc., but it stuck in my head how people come up with mnemonics and how we can hear different things when we hear those mnemonics. Okay, so flash forward to whenever and everyone is arguing about this thing. Listen carefully. Laurel. 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 Right? You remember this? The great Yanny Laurel debate of 2018? So this is my thought process when I'm hearing this thing. One... It's clearly Laurel, guys. Two, how can you hear Yanny? That is crazy. Three, oh, geez, what if everyone is hearing bird mnemonics completely different than I am? So, uh, full disclosure, I have never been able to hear Acadian flycatcher as pizza. It's obviously pea soup to me, but maybe some people do. Willow flycatcher does not say Fitzbue. It's clearly saying free beer, which also endears it to my own spiritus sensibilities, for what it's worth. What if instead of drink your tea, people are hearing mint your chi? Instead of Chicago, people are hearing Francisco. Instead of sweet, sweet, a little more sweet, some people are hearing no more, please, I'm diabetic. Instead of who cooks for you, it's we take turns cooking because we live in an equitable household. The less said about sweet Canada versus Sam Peabody, the better. So this Yanny Laurel thing has sort of opened my eyes. Maybe the reason some mnemonics never quite connected with me personally is because different people are hearing birds differently. This is just a hypothesis. I don't know how true it is. But I do think a lot of the mnemonics we use now came into being a long time ago. They were written into early field guides and just kind of stuck with us by force of inertia to the point where they become lodged in the birding cultural consciousness to our detriment. Uh, in the way that something like Confusing Fall Warblers has. That, that might be a rant I say for another day. It's possible I'm sort of late to that train. I have noticed a push in birding how-to books to encourage people to come up with their own mnemonics, uh, like, are you ready, are you ready, instead of, if I see you, I will seize you. Or people like Nathan Peeplow, who we talked to uh, last year on the podcast, who wrote a book trying to establish a common language for how we talk about bird vocalizations. In the past, I'd sort of seen those as a communication problem in need of a communication solution. But the revelation that we may be hearing things in different ways is a little bit of a mind blower. 
But at least I feel a little better about never being able to make please, please, please to meet you work. I've always heard it as this introduction is a formality and I'm just being polite. Chestnut cider warblers are a little bit jerky after all. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. You can support this podcast and the many free resources the ABA provides to the birding community by joining the ABA. Members receive Birding Magazine and Birder's Guide, discounts to our partners, and the knowledge that you are helping us build a better birding community. You can get more information at aba.org join. A special shout out to Anthony Munter of Kenai, Alaska, Thomas Doherty of Urbandale, Iowa, Bilal Al-Shawani of Mountain View, California, and Aaron Sarek from Conway, South Carolina, all of whom joined the ABA recently and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you for your support and welcome to the ABA. If you're still listening, we would love it if you headed over to Apple Podcasts or wherever your preferred source for podcasts is and leave us a rating or a review. We love hearing from you and your support helps people find us. Thanks for that. Thanks to Audio Machine for the inspirational music in the intro segment. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He says birding is like Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. It's pretty much just wandering around an expansive fantasy world, taking pictures of things and occasionally fighting off bands of troll monsters. Technical production is by John Lowry, who notes that birding is like Frogger, especially when you have to park on one side of the busy highway and everyone is set up looking at the Amazon Kingfisher on the other side. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who note that birding is just like Mortal Kombat. You know, when you're in the field and you see the person ahead of you in the eBird Top 100 for your county, and you have to... Finish him! You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. We are guilty of using Mario Kart tactics when on a Twitch. That's why I keep my trunk well-stocked with blue shells. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.